Well, let's begin as we hopefully close at least this last installment, whether we do it this morning or whether we do it this evening, on uh, the last portion of this speaking here of the whole armor of God. Let me begin reading with verse 10, and we will read down through verse 20. And, of course, the text is really 19 and 20, but uh, we begin by looking at verse 18 as well. Let's begin by reading verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that he may be able to stand, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, and above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation, and the spirit of the, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. And for me, that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in bonds, that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak." You remember this section begins there in verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. He says this in light of, uh, obviously, the context of this whole book. The first three chapters dealing with those high and lofty, gracious doctrines of redemption as he begins to tell us of the spiritual blessings that we've had in Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world, how that he has predestinated us unto the adoption of children, how that he has redeemed us by his grace, how that the great mystery of the gospel has been revealed both now to Jew and to Gentile more plainly than it had ever been in before. And then he gets into, as it were, the practical matters beginning in chapter 4, telling us to, as a church they were out to dwell in unity one with another, walk in peace. And then he talks about the ministry, the giving of it by the hand of Christ personally unto the churches. And thus we have these particular offices that are to mature uh, the body of Christ. And then he begins to speak about the particular individual duties of each and every one of us. That we're not to lie, that we're to speak the truth, we're not to be angry uh, and sin. And, and those sort of things, we're to be forgiving one to another, have love one to another. And then we see the fact that we're again in a spiritual battle. We're to rebuke the workers of darkness and so forth. And then he begins to speak about the particular agains of our lives, of being individuals as family members, as individuals in that sense. That husbands are to love their, love their wives. Wives are to be submissive to their husbands. Children are to obey their parents. Parents are to raise their children up properly. That people who go to work ought to work, and people who have uh, employees under them ought to remember that they too have a master. And thus, that is the context in which Paul begins now to wind up this book, this letter, this epistle to these to this church there at Ephesus, and he tells them then, then finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord. 
saying all that because of all that had went before. Knowing that those truths and that practicality will do us no good unless God is blessing us in it and through it. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. And in order then to work out, as it were, that particular thing, we are to do what he says there in verse 11, beginning to put on the whole armor of God. And thus then Paul begins to delineate here the particular aspects of the armor of God, beginning there in verse 13. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand or to be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having your loins, as he begins to talk about, gird about with truth. And then he goes through those particular things, telling us that the whole armor of God is what you and I are in need of. And then beginning in verse 18, as I said, some have made this out to be either part of the armor itself, that is, it would be the seventh piece, or it is, as it were, the capstone, that which is to bless all of that putting on to begin with. Either way, it still comes down to the same thing. Brethren, we are to pray with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. And thus we opened that up last Lord Day, looking at verse 18 all the way down to the end there. And the first part of that, verse 18, it is in reference to whom? Well, in particular, it's to all the saints. But he's even going to get more particular now in verse 19. Verse 19, you'll notice, doesn't come after a period. There is a semicolon after verse 18. Thus, the thought continues on. Yes, pray for all saints. Make supplication for them. Do it in spiritual ways. Be watching thereunto with it. Be on guard about praying one for another. And then he adds, and pray for me, that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in bonds, that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. So here, after Paul instructs the saints at Ephesus to pray and that for all saints, he closes this prayer armor piece here, or the capstone as it were. He gives them here a special notice of himself. Now I say special because after he states that he should pray for all, that they should pray for all saints, he makes mention of himself. Not as a saint, which they were to pray for Paul as that, but to make mention of himself as a minister of Christ. So, brethren, when you remember to pray one for another, please don't forget to pray for me. That's what Paul is saying there. And I'll apply that to me today. Brethren, while you pray one for another, please don't forget to pray for me. I trust you do pray one for another. I pray, trust and pray that you are always praying for one for another. And that you're on guard and reference that. Because there are many things that will take us away from the duty of prayer. Isn't it? How easy it is to, be, to stray away from that spiritual duty, as of spiritually speaking, of bowing the knee to God and to pray one for another. It's easy to get out of that, isn't it? 
It's a lot harder getting back into it as, as it was to get out, harder as it is to get out of it. And the fact of the matter is, Paul goes on, but also though, remember me. He desires that they pray for him as a minister that he would have utterance and boldness to preach the gospel while he was in the bonds or that he was in. Now, just something of the wherewithal of all of this. This is this book of Ephesians, as I've looked at it and studying especially the closing aspects and some of the things he says, you can pretty well tell that this is probably one of his last epistles that was written by him. I recognize that Second Timothy was probably the last one, but he had some last epistles, as it were, that were written by him. He is at, as it were, the very end or the near the end of his life and the end of his ministry. And we see here that according to this text, that, he w- that this book was written in the setting of while he was in prison. This book was written while there, Paul was a prisoner of the household of Caesar, probably so. Look in Philippians chapter 1. Verse 13, it says, So that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. In other words, where Paul was at. It was very notable that he was not just a sleeping guest. He was a prisoner in bondage in the household. And though he was in prison or he had bonds about him, notice here, he was not idle in his calling as a minister of Christ. He wrote this letter, for instance. He wrote other epistles to other brethren and to other churches at this very time. He was not idle. Not only that, he also preached. In fact, many of Caesar's households was probably converted under his ministry. Again, turning to the last chapter of the book of Philippians, he says in verse 22, All the saints salute you, chiefly, they that are of Caesar's household. So here, right in the midst of the very head of the Roman government, Paul is preaching under his household, and people, servants as it were, were being converted. The saints salute you. What saints? Chiefly they that are of Caesar's household. You see, the Apostle Paul was called to preach. He was sent to preach, and that's exactly what he did, even in the midst of bonds. And brethren, that ought to show us we have no excuse to be slack in our responsibilities and duties and callings, even though we may be under trials and adversities. Because here's Paul. I'd say he's under a trial and adversity. He knows he's going to lose his head in a matter of time. He knows that he's being counted an enemy, not only of the Jew, but especially of the Roman government, and he will be put to death. But yet, does he say, oh, woe is me, I'm going to sit here and suck on my thumb and lick my wounds because all this is taking place to me? No, what does he do? He stays busy, he stays content, and he is very uh, diligent in his Calling, even though he had all of these things coming upon him. And though he certainly had a special call of God, and by that we mean it was given by direct revelation from Jesus Christ himself, yet Paul, though, 
still had flesh. And though he was a mighty man, though he was a great preacher, and though, as I said, he had been taken up even to the third heaven, had been given revelations beyond revelation, as it were, so to speak, yet he still dwelt in flesh. He still had sin remaining in him. He knew that when he would do good, sin was present with him. His flesh rebelled against him. And probably just as strongly when he desired to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. When he was specifically wanting to do the work of being a minister, you know that his sin certainly was rising up in him. When I would do good, sin is present with me. If you were to study how Paul viewed preaching, you would see he believed that it was under God a necessary means to save sinners and to exhort the saints. You cannot read anything but that when you come away from reading some of the epistles of the Apostle Paul. And as a great of an emphasis that he put upon preaching, he recognizes here in this point that he was still a debtor to the grace of God. And I'll go a step further and saying it within that context he also recognized he was a debtor to the people of God to pray for him. Pray for me, verse 19. That utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. Notice in verse 20, he makes note here that he is an ambassador. One sent by a king, as it were, the ruler of government. That would be Christ Jesus himself. So he's speaking here of a position that he was in, a duty to perform. And again, where? Notice in verse 20, in bonds. And yet all of this he knew, though, he was not sufficient for these things. He had his fears. You don't really think about that when you think of the Apostle Paul, do you? But he was a man who had fears. It says he had fears within, fears without. He said he died daily. He didn't know when his next meal, sometimes when his next breath was going to come, as it were. So he had fears, just as you and I have fears. Just as you and I have fears when we're ready to preach the gospel or speak of the gospel to others. How many of you get kind of nervous when you witness to other folks? Hands get a little sweaty. Knees knees start knocking a little bit. Well, the Apostle Paul had his fears in those things as well. You know, many of us keep our mouths closed because of this fear. The fear of man as it really is. Yet Paul recognized his shortcomings and notice what he does. He doesn't say, well, I'm I'm just not as bold as I ought, so I shouldn't do it. No, what does he do here? He prays. That other, or he praised them that they would pray for him and for me, that utterance may be given, that I may open my mouth boldly. If I need a grace, if I need encouragement, I should not only ask God, but I should ask others to pray for me. Notice that. He didn't say, and God, he doesn't take verse 18 and say, okay, now I've told you all to pray for all saints. Now, excuse me a minute, I'm going now to pray for me. He doesn't do that, does he, in the text? What does he do here? He tells the brethren at Ephesus to pray for him. 
Remember me too in your prayer. When you pray for other saints, remember me. He didn't just say, well, don't worry about me. I'll pray for myself. I'm sure Paul did. But he also encouraged, entreated, and commanded, this is in the imperative, that you pray for me. And for me, he says, pray for me. Because of his circumstances, because of his imprisonment, because of his fears of men, because of his own sufficiencies, he coveted the prayers of his fellow saints to pray for him at the throne of grace. What do you think the Ephesians thought of him when they read verse 19? We don't know. It would be interesting to know what they thought, didn't they? Of someone who knew the apostle by face, heard him preach, many of them did, knew of his work, corresponds with them, and then, as it were, he humbles himself here to ask that they would pray for him. Pray that he would have boldness to speak the gospel as he should preach it. I think Paul here knew something then of the reality of prayer for his ministry. Not that just that he prayed. And again, in Acts 6, we see why there are deacons, if those are deacons in Acts 6, so that we may give ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. We are to pray as ministers of Christ. But Paul knew the reality of others praying for him in his ministry as well. So pray. Now, there are two things we want to note from this text. First of all, the duty of saints, this would be the doctrine and application, the duty of saints to pray for their ministers. Secondly, the subject of the saints' prayers for their ministers. The duty of saints to pray for their ministers. And then the subject matter, as we would say, of the saints' prayers for their ministers. So let's look at the first heading. And again, I don't know how far we'll get today on this, but I know for a fact tonight, Lord willing, we should be able to close and wrap all of this up if we don't get that far. First duty is the duty of saints to pray for your minister. So let me put it plainly, your duty, brethren, to pray for your pastor or pastors as the case may be. At the moment, it's just me. But if there were more elders here, then you should pray for them as well. It's a duty. It's a command that you pray for your pastors. Now, it's hard for a pastor to press upon the duties of the people of God in reference to himself. It's one of those hard things that I know I have to do. It's kind of embarrassing in one sense, but uh, I have to do it. It's hard. One, I have to look at you in the face and say it. Secondly, I know that some will receive it wrongly. There'll be some because of sin, because of devils whispering in their ears, because they're receiving worldly counsel, or they just got some grudge against me that they will... I'm knocking against my jacket against that. They will take what I say wrongly. So that even makes it harder to say the things sometimes that I ought to say. And so, let me give you a couple of three instances on that. For instance... And I'm not trying to get a raise here, but I'm just trying to say, we are to remind the brethren that we are, there's a duty to maintenance those who labor over you. 
Just as Paul, remember in Philippians again in chapter 4 and verse 15, Paul makes note, he says, Now ye Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only. For even in Thessalonica ye sent once and again unto my necessity, not because I desire a gift, but I desire fruit that may abound to your account. Paul speaks to them there about the necessities of giving so that the ministry will go on. Paul, again, speaking to uh, Timothy there in 1 Timothy, I think chapter uh, 5, dealing with the, the elders who, who labor in word and doctrine are worthy of, of double, uh, double reward. And so, those are things that I have to preach. And yes, it's embarrassing. Yes, it's hard. But I, I still have to do it. Some will take it that I'm trying or someone's trying to lord over them. You know, and I tell the brethren, look, the Scripture teaches that in Hebrews and other passages of Scripture, you're to obey them that have the rule over them. The first thing people think, oh, you're just trying to be my God. You're trying to rule my conscience. No, actually, I'm not. I'm trying to be obedient to God's Word. That's what I'm trying to do. But again, people are going to take it wrong. Some will take it as boasting of, of himself and his office. The Apostle Paul, for instance, had to many times uh, had to defend his calling because of the false teachers that had come in and tried to, in reality, discredit the Apostle Paul. So he has to time and time again to lay out his claim to the apostleship. In fact, in many of his, the beginnings of his letter, he has to state very plainly, I am an apostle of Jesus Christ. He says that in order to defend because there have been so many bad rumors gone out about his being a false apostle. So he defends that on a really constant basis. But in particular, notice 2 Corinthians chapter 11 where he does this. He says, um, I say again, let no man think me a fool. If otherwise, yet as a fool receive me, that I may boast myself a little. Now, what he's saying here is, look, he says... Please bear with me with this. I'm going to have to defend my apostleship. I'm going to have to defend my claim to being who Christ has sent me. And I'm going to have to boast a moment. But I want you to understand I do it as a fool. Just as a fool would go around boasting about himself. Not knowing that he shouldn't. He says, I have to do this, but I do it for your sake. He says, that which I speak, I speak not after the Lord, but as it were foolishly in this confidence of boasting. Confidence of boasting. Seeing that many glory after the flesh, I will glory also. For ye suffer fools gladly, seeing yourselves are wise. He's being sarcastic towards them. For ye suffer if a man bring you into bondage, if a man devour you, if a man take of you, if a man exalt himself, if a man smite you on the face. He says, you've taken all of that, but you don't take it from me. He says, I'm speaking concerning reproach, as though you had been weak, albeit... Wherein so is any bold, I speak foolishly. I'm bold too, he says. You want to hear boldness? I'll give you boldness, he says. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. He's reminding them again. I'm trying to only boast here just to help you in this. He says, I more. And labors more abundant, and stripes above measure, and prisons more frequently, and deaths off of the Jews five times received I forty stripes, save one, and so forth. Look at verse 30. If I needs glory, I will glory of the things which concern mine 
infirmities. So he has to do that. Sometimes a pastor has to say these kinds of things. Then there are the pastors who know that there are people that he has in his flock who really don't give a hoot. And he feels bad calling on them to pray for him anyway. So he doesn't want to burden them. And yet, though it is hard for the minister to put out his needs and his concerns to the brethren, he should, because the people in reality have a duty unto God and unto that minister to do so. So what's to be done? Both the minister is to present his needs and the duty of the brethren to care for those needs. First Thessalonians uh, chapter 2. And I'm not saying all this today because I've got a beef to go over with you. That's not the point. I'm just trying to show you why Paul does what he does here. I'm very content and happy. So, it's not that. But notice in Second Thess- First Thessalonians excuse me, chapter 2, and verse 11. He says, You know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father doth his children, that you walk worthy of God, who hath called you unto his kingdom and glory. You see, that's the concern that is to be among us as ministers to those whom we minister unto. And all of this doesn't come because we're so wise and powerful. It becomes because of the blessings of God upon our ministries. And this, again, is why Paul here prays the duty of the people of God to pray. Notice in Colossians 4, verse 2. Oop, I'm in another book. That won't work. Colossians 4, verse 2. Continue in prayer and watch the same with thanksgiving. Sounds a lot like Ephesians, doesn't it? With all, that is, above everything else, praying also for us, he says. Pray also for us. First Thessalonians 5.25 says, Brethren, pray for us. Now, why? Why should the people of God pray for those who labor over them? Well, first and foremost, as you know, it's because we're commanded to do so. And that would be enough, would it not? But think about it. Why is that command there? Let's back it up and go just a little bit further, a little bit deeper into the subject. Why would you need to be commanded to pray for those who labor among you? Well, we know the command is there, but why is the command? Well, first of all, our infirmities. You've got flesh, so do we. You've got remaining corruption, so do we. You have trials and adversity, so do we. You've got people who don't like you, so do we. It's a reality for all of us. We're not somehow exempt of the trials and the adversities and the sins of the flesh that you are. We have sin in us. We make mistakes just like you make mistakes. We don't understand all there is to know about God's Word just like you don't understand all there is to know about God's Word. It's a reality. I have a lot of brethren coming to me after services and asking me for things I have to say. I don't know. I just don't know. You deal with sin in your life, so do I. You have particular areas where you're more tempted with, so am I. You have trouble with the tongue, so do I. You have trouble with thought processes, so do I. You have trouble being bold to so you can teach others and preach to others, so do I. 
I'm just like you are. You get angry, so do I. You get hurt, so do I. You have bad days, so do I. We could go down the list. What you have, I have. Or I could say it this way. What I have, you have. And this is one instance of where it's kind of easy to be a pastor in the sense that I don't have to look very far to know what to preach about as far as sin is concerned because I've got it all right here too. I really don't have to bug your houses. I really don't have to go hide behind the couch and listen to the conversations that go on in your household because they're going on in my own head. I have them too. I have a past life as well. I was saved out of sin and iniquity and debauchery, just as some of you were. See, I have all this too. And I still carry it in my head, just as you carry it in your head. I've done things since I was things that I I have done things since I was converted I should not have done that you have done things that you should have done that you should not have done as you I was too long I shouldn't have even started that sentence. You mess up in talking public I mess up talking publicly. We see we all I have infirmities so do you. So you should pray for me. Paul was bold to say it. Paul commanded it. Secondly, we should do, you should do so because we're dealing with spiritual truths which are only known and dealt with by spiritual means. Remember this morning, we were talking about those two brethren who were on the road to Emmaus and they didn't even recognize it was Christ who came up alongside them. And they could not see because of the blindness of their hearts and because of the reality that these were spiritual truth. Not that Jesus was a ghost and that sort of thing, but the reality of all that was spiritual. And he takes them through the spiritual book, the Bible, the Old Testament, and tries to and he opens up unto them the Old Testament in regards to his sufferings and his resurrection. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things, he says, according to the law and to the testimony of the scriptures? And who is it that teaches us these things? It's God. Again, we quoted that verse this morning. A man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. And so we need wisdom in our dealings with God's word and with God's people. So pray for us. We're in the midst of talking about Satan's devices and the armor that is to put on. Satan has advice, advances against us as well. Two times in the qualifications of the elder, the Satan is mentioned. So there must be something that Satan has against his ministers. Christ's ministers, not his, but Christ's ministers. So pray for us because of the very context of all of this. You know what? I have to put on the whole armor of God just as you do. It's not just that I preach it and all of you to wear it. I too have to put it on. I too have to stand and to withstand and haven't done all, then stand again. And then fourthly, we suffer, as we said a little bit earlier, we suffer the same temptations that you do. Ever come, ever get up in the morning, ever come to church, you're kind of cold hearted, just kind of wishing the day would get over with and. Uh, get the sermon over and get done and go home. You know, I feel that way too sometimes. 
You know where he says there, pray always with all prayer and supplication and the Spirit, watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. You know how hard you find that? I find it hard too sometimes. We have coldness of heart. We have temptations. I can become unconcerned about things just as you do. I can get fed up just like you can. I war with the flesh just as you do. So you ought to pray. After hearing that, I hope you'll pray more now. Well, I didn't know he thought that way. Well, if you just look at your heart, then you ought to know what kind of heart I have. Unless you're unconverted now, I'm not saying that. But a saved heart, I have just like you have. And so if you see the weaknesses and the trials and the fears and the troubles and the discomforts, the loneliness, those are things I have as well. And just as you would want brethren to pray for you about your matters, I want you to pray for me in these matters. To think. Think about this. The Apostle Paul who preached to kings. Remember, it was prophesied by the Lord Himself that you're going to stand before kings and preach. And that He did. He boldly, you remember in the book of Acts, when He was taken captive by the Romans because the Jews were going to pull Him apart because He had said There's a, there has been the resurrection of the dead. So the Sadducees had one arm and the uh, Pharisees had the other and they were yanking on Paul. They were going to pull him apart until the Roman centurion came in and he took him away. Captain came in and he took him away. And then he goes, wait a minute, let me speak to him. He said, well, you know Greek? Well, sure I do. I'm a Greek. I'm a, I'm a Roman citizen. And so he beckons him with a hand. You know, get the idea of preachers preach with a hand. Look how many times it talks about Paul beckoning with a hand. He beckons him with a hand and then he speaks this long uh, thesis there, discourse in Hebrew to them. He's able to stand up and do that, knowing that they were the ones who were going to tear him to pieces if the Roman government just was to step back. Oh, Paul, you're crazy. We're going home. And then they pounce on him. He was bold to speak that way. Standing in Caesar's household, knowing that his very life was at stake, and yet he testifies to Caesar's servants of the gospel of Christ. He's able to stand before Caiaphas and call him a hypocrite. You whited wall. Remember in Acts when he did that? See? But yet now we find him here saying, pray for me that I'll have boldness. The apostle, probably the greatest preacher outside of Christ himself. And yet he, as it were, lowers himself, humbles himself, presents his need here that these brethren would pray for him. And if the likes of the Apostle Paul needs prayer, you can imagine, brethren, the prayer I need from the brethren here. Well, then, secondly, oh, look what time it is. Let's close with this point, then. And, I mean, this is what I just said there. Let me, uh, for the application, just say this. Prayer for your minister. 
I'll make sure I won't say this tonight. Prayer for your minister in reality is prayer for you. So if you want to get selfish here this morning, do it that way. I don't care. I'll take it. If you pray for me, in reality, it's prayer for you because you derive your benefits from the gospel ministry because we hope from the ministry here. And as you derive your own benefits from your prayers for me, so you should ought to pray. Why? Because this ministry and this minister and those who will come after me or with me are in this place by Christ for you. So all that you do to help me, whether praying, maintenance, encouragement, all those things, they in reality rebound back to you. If I'm doing what I ought to do and give me the grace by God to do what I ought to do, in reality, it is only a plus for you. So just for selfish reasons, you should pray for me. Pray for those who labor over you.